Right, as the um, baskets pass by, uh, you can also put your connection cards in there. Hey, listen, again, if we haven't met yet, my name is Benger, and um, one of the pastors here at Flourishing Grace. And as we um, jump in, first of all, we are in a series um, walking through the Sermon on the Mount. And so if you brought your uh, journal for the Ser- Sermon on the Mount, that's awesome. If you're new, you haven't gotten one yet, we actually have a journal back there on the sound booth over there, and you can just walk back right now, uh, no worries, and grab that one. Um, but as we dive in today... Um, I want to know, are there any rule benders in the house? Like, I'm not, no, no, hold on. First of all, I've got to define this, okay? I'm not talking about rule breakers. Anybody can break a rule, all right? Like, that is, that's not elegant. That's not impressive. I'm talking about the rule benders who are able to get around a rule and make it look like, and even like if you were, you know, testifying in a court of law, make it just seem like, yeah, I, I followed the rule to the letter, but you really didn't follow the intent you got around the rule. Anybody who loved to do that or maybe loved to do that as a kid? Yeah, some of you are pointing to others, okay? There we go. Um, yeah, there's a little bit of me in that, and I think there's a little bit of, of that in me, I, I mean, and there's a little bit of that in all of us, because um, there's something about a rule that we long to get around. And, and when we see it, let's be honest, when we see somebody else do it, either to their advantage or to our disadvantage, it drives us nuts, right? Like, I can't believe they did that. But if we can do it, oh, we're all for that. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today as we walk through this um, Sermon on the Mount. Um, this is week four of our series, and so if you're new here, you missed the first uh, few weeks, um, let me just give you a little bit of a background. Um, the Sermon on the Mount is, is really, a, it's a body of teaching that Matthew records. Matthew is one of Jesus' original followers and one of the authors of one of the biographies that we have, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so Matthew wrote Matthew, creatively named, I know. And in chapters five, Five through seven, um, he lays out a time when Jesus um, sat down and gave a body of teaching. And this body of teaching, Jesus taught a lot of things, he did a lot of things, um, he healed a lot of people. Um, but this body of teaching is significant for the reason because in it, Jesus really outlines what it looks like to follow him and what life in, in God's kingdom is supposed to look like. And so, if you were to ask somebody or somebody were to ask you, you what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? What is is life supposed to look like in God's kingdom? Uh, This would be the first place to go. And as we have seen so far, and we're going to continue to see, time and time again, this sermon is going to jar us. It's It's going to chafe against the way we usually do life. Even if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, even if you have followed Jesus uh, pretty much your whole life, and, and, and maybe even been decades, there should be times, if we truly listen to Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, that we, uh, it's going to chafe against the way we do life. It's going to jar us a little bit, because as we've talked about, um, the Sermon on the Mount, is at odds with and, and, and opposed to the sermon of the world. And, and the idea is this, is that as Jesus invites us to a flourishing life, to follow him, um, it is going to be different and it's even going to come in opposition to the way that we've just learned to live life. And so we have to repeatedly ask ourselves, am I living, am I listening to, am I following Jesus and is teaching the Sermon on the Mount or am I following the, the sermon of the world? 
And so today, um, we're going to dive into um, a body of teaching that's actually going to last about six weeks. But first, I want to back us up to last week. Last week, where we left off Jesus, um, he, he was teaching about the law and how he came to fulfill the law. And then in uh, chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, um, Jesus says this, and it'll be up here on the screen. He said, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And it was just as silent, I imagine, when Jesus said these words for the first time. Because if you think about it, and you know who the scribes and the Pharisees are, nobody was better at knowing the law, interpreting the law, and performing the law than the scribes and the Pharisees. At least in, in, in their culture, that was the thought. The Pharisees loved the law so much and they wanted to follow the law so much that if God put down a boundary, a line right here and said, hey, don't cross this, they would back up and they would, they would have more lines from there. They'd say, okay, we're going to add a rule to that so we don't even get close to this line that God said, that's a boundary you shouldn't cross over. They loved God's law. And they loved to follow God's law or at least have the appearance of it. But as Jesus teaches here, and this was shocking, because if, if, if you think about, man, if, if my righteousness doesn't exceed the scribes and the Pharisees, who are like the pros of this, like if the bar is here, they're at least there, if not over it. What Jesus is saying is, no, 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 that's not the bar. The bar is above that. And so the question is, what hope is there, Jesus? And last week we talked about, yeah, that's, that's the point. Because it is not our righteousness that gets us into the kingdom of heaven. It is not our righteousness that reconciles us to God. It is Jesus' righteousness. If we did it on our own power, if we, if we attempted to reconcile ourselves to God based on our good behavior, it never would happen. I mean, you know this. You may not be a follower of Jesus, but you have your own set of standards. You don't even meet up to your own set of standards. So how much more, if there really is a living God, do we meet his? And the point is that rather than letting us wallow in that, Jesus came and rescued us and he met those righteous, those righteous standards. He died on the cross for you and me, taking the penalty of our sin so that we might live with him and experience a new life. And as we stand before God, it is not our deeds that God sees, but if we have put our hope and trust in Jesus, Jesus has clothed us with his righteousness so that when God looks at us, he sees what Jesus did on our behalf and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. There's another meaning to this sentence right here. And that's this. I think Jesus meant for a little bit of tongue in cheek kind of thing going on here because the ironic thing is that by being obsessed with the law, by being obsessed with these rules, by, by making rule upon rule so we don't even get close to God's law, the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the time put an emphasis on external behavior rather than what God is doing inside of us. And you've known people like this. You've known people who say, man, you look good on the outside, but I've seen what's on the inside. And this is what Jesus will talk about over the next six weeks as we'll see it. We're going to see that as it comes to God's law, and remember, Jesus didn't say, I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. He said, no, I've come to fulfill it. So Jesus loves the law, but he is concerned in how we use those standards of God, of this law that God gave us to transform us from the inside out, not to put on some shell of a human being that looks good from the outside, but really inside. Nothing good is there. Now, speaking of rules, as we get into this today, um, I asked my girls at dinner this week, um, what rules 
they have heard mom and dad say, or what rules exist in our house. Now, this wasn't like prompted by mom and dad. Like, we weren't going to write them down from our point of view. This is, this is supposed to be from our girl's point of view. We got an 8, 10, and 12-year-old. I love them all. And they kind of relish this idea. In fact, um, our oldest was on the floor laughing at me and some of the rules that I have. So go easy on me, okay? But these are some of the rules from our girl's point of view that we have in our house, all right? Some of them take some explaining. First rule, the three times rule. Okay, if you're doing something annoying or there's an annoying song that a sister or a mom and dad don't like, you can only do it three times and then you're done for the rest of the day. Yes, we have needed this on many occasions. Um, No screen time, Monday through Thursday. You get screens, personal screens, Friday through Sunday. Do your homework. Practice your cello, which I suppose only applies to one of us because only one of our kids play the cello. Put your boots, your coats, and your backpacks away when you get home from school. Can I get an amen, parents? <laughs> don't lie. Don't cheat, especially on board games. Okay, don't judge. Okay, this one's from me. There's a 40, number of, there's a 40 volume limit on the stereo during mealtime so that we can actually hear each other talk, okay? Yes, it is laid out as the number. Uh, kit for the day gets to choose. Um, instead of kids fighting over what seat they get to sit in in the van or something like that, we rotate kid for the day, and the kid for the day for that day gets to choose. Um, and it actually rotates. It's not like we pick our favorite kid for that day. <laughs> not a bad idea, though. Might get a little better behavior. Uh, don't put so much food in your mouth that you choke. <laughs> Clean up your own mess. Uh, chew with your mouth, cl- mouth closed. Do your house chores. If you want something clean, an article of clothing, put it in the hamper. Speaking of clothing, if it's not on your body, it goes either in the hamper or the drawer, not on the floor. Don't ride your bike or your scooter past the church. There's a, a church in our neighborhood, and that's kind of their boundary for, for exploring the neighborhood on their own. Um, no drawing on the furniture. Now, did I mention I have an 8, 10, and 12-year-old? That's a new rule this week. <laughs> If you leave the house on your own, bring the, the, the cell phone. Uh, don't hurt each other. Um, only parents get to mix the Gatorade. Yes, there's a reason for that. I'm not going to explain it. Why is my wife laughing at me? If we run out of something, like a grocery item, put it on the board. Um, use your napkin, not your clothes. If you don't have kids yet, yes, that's a real rule, like through teenage years, okay? No blowing whistles or horns in the house. Self-explanatory. You cannot do rainbow loom for the love of our vacuum cleaner on the floor. Okay, rainbow loom, if you know what it is, only happens on the table. No food upstairs. Clean up your bath toys and hang up your towel. Um, You can only say sorry if you actually do something wrong. Slime can only be made at the kitchen table. And no feet or knees on the kitchen table. All right? And this is... Just, they came up with more throughout the week. I was like, no, you've, we've written down what you already said. You don't get any more. Now, here's a question. When, I, when my kids leave the house, and, and one day they will, is my goal that they would be able to check off this list perfectly and hand this to me? Yep, I do this all well. I'm going to do this into adulthood. No. The point of these rules is not that they would perform some sort of external behavior, but that there would be something going on inside them. And really, these are ridiculous rules, but when it comes down to the actual rules that you can get in big trouble with in our house, most of them have to do with relational rules, with with how you treat people. 
Because what we really want, we don't want them to check off some sort of external behavior list. We want God to be doing a work inside of them. And that's what we're going to see Jesus talking about today. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. Again, you can pull out your scripture journals or you can pull out your Bible. If you didn't bring your Bible, um, there's a blue Bible underneath your seat. We'll be on page 898. Uh, You can open that up and read that. If you don't have a Bible at home, if you need one, listen, that's our gift to you. Please grab a pen, put your name in it. We want those to walk out the door. But we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. 21 through 26. And we're going to take these just a couple of verses at a time and see what Jesus has to say. So we're going to start at verse 21. You have heard it said, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. That's tough. Now, when Jesus said, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, they knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. Like, yeah, this is the Ten Commandments. I mean, we're Jewish people, you know, that they would say to Jesus, we understand this, we understand the Ten Commandments. I mean, Charlton Heston, I mean, Moses came down from the mountain and, and gave these, and it had to go up again, the whole thing. Understand that, do not murder. And Jesus preempts it with this. He says, you have heard it said to those of old, meaning this is what it was. And then Jesus from there said, but I say to you. Now, here's the thing. It's not that Jesus is contradicting the sixth commandment. It's not that he's saying, okay, we're going to get rid of do not murder. What he's doing, he's actually doing a teaching um, kind of technique where where he's he's extrapolating some some meaning out of this. And in addition to that, as we see Jesus use the same pattern, you've heard it said, but I say to you, over the next six weeks with many different topics, what Jesus is really getting at is not the core law, but how it is interpreted and applied by the religious leaders. And this is heavy stuff. Now, before we get into exactly what Jesus is getting at, I want to just address something. You and I don't read this the way that Jesus says it. In fact, we put something a little extra into verse 22, and this is what it is. It'll be up here on the screen. Let me see if you can see the change. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Do you see the difference? You see, you and I, when we read this, we put an asterisk next to this. Okay, surely Jesus doesn't mean angry against this thing. All right, this person did this to me. Surely that's okay to be angry at. And we'll get to that. But you and I, no matter where we come from, we read this verse with an asterisk. We say, okay, there's a proviso, there's an exception. I've got an exception to this. Okay, in general, Jesus, this is true, but I've got an exception to this. In fact, and and this may be new to you, um, but, but many people... And this is kind of a side note, but many people, uh, and I've heard this many times, believe that, that the, the way that we get our present day Bible is like a long historical game of telephone where Matthew, in this instance, would have written this text down, and then somebody would have copied it, and somebody would have translated it one language to the next, and then things get changed. We don't even know if what we have today is really what Matthew written down, and that actually couldn't be further from the truth. You see, people loved what Matthew wrote down as they realized, I mean, these are the words of Jesus, and as they were welcomed into the canon of Scripture, immediately 
immediately after, they were copied again, and, and they were sent to different churches throughout the different regions. And they went in all different directions. And those people loved this text so much that they meticulously copied it again and again, and they would go out to different regions. So much so that around the known world, we have copies of these texts. And when we bring them all together, even though one went in one direction for 100 years and one went in another direction, when we see how they were copied, they actually match up most of the time to 99.9% accuracy. So, so we know within 0.1% what was actually in Matthew's text in the original language. And we can see where somebody somewhere along the way in one group of texts might have changed something. Well, that actually happened here. You may have a little footnote in your Bible. But somewhere, somewhere along the way, most scholars believe that something w was added to this. And that's why it probably doesn't appear in your Bible. And that's this phrase where the asterisk is, without cause. All right, Jesus, surely you don't mean like righteous anger, right? Because Jesus had righteous anger. Like he was angry sometimes, right? But this is one thing I know about you and me. We're not Jesus. We have to take Jesus at his word, and this is difficult to hear sometimes. Now, what did Jesus really mean by this? Well, he says, whoever's angry with his brother, and when he says brother, um, if you know anything about foreign languages, especially like uh, Spanish and French and Italian, um, Greek is one of those languages where one letter changes something from a male to a female noun. And usually when the male noun is there by itself, it really means instead of just brother, brother and sister. And so Jesus says, whoever is angry with his brother or sister will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother or sister will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, here's what Jesus is getting at. In the Old Testament, when you read the laws, when you were accused of murder, you were brought to trial. And this idea, by the way, in ancient Israel was, was, was uncommon in the ancient world. This idea of a fair trial, you were brought before a council and you had the chance to defend yourself. But God said, that's the way it's going to be. And so you're brought before a council, and if you were found guilty of this murder, if, there was, if it wasn't an accident, if there, if there wasn't good cause, then you would receive your punishment, which was capital punishment. And the idea was that also, it was understood that they believed that, that you would enter into judgment before God himself. And what Jesus is saying is, like, well, that actually goes for if you call a brother or sister and insult them, or you're angry with them, or you call them a fool, now, this is scary because I've called many people foolish. But what is Jesus looking at here? Well, when he says whoever insults his brother, the word that is used there, it's this Aramaic word raka, which means, in essence, empty-headed. And it's not just like, oh, that, that person's stupid, or like it's stupid that the Broncos aren't in the Super Bowl, because it is stupid that the Broncos aren't in the Super Bowl. But it's not that kind of thing. When you call somebody empty-headed to them, it was, it was the deepest insult. It's like when you lock your jaw and, and you say it through your teeth. You say stupid, like that person's an idiot. We're not talking like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm annoyed with that person and that person is worthless. You are demeaning that person. When you say you fool, like to us it sounds kind of weird and medieval, like I challenge you to a duel, you fool. But if you know your Old Testament, all right, if you read the book of Proverbs especially, this idea of being a fool was somebody who had total disregard for God. Right? In, in, in Proverbs, this idea of wise and foolish wasn't like what your IQ was. It was whether you submitted to God's rule and reign in your life or not. And if you were a fool, you disregarded God and his rule and his reign in your life. And so to call somebody a fool is to call them heartless, empty-hearted. So to say raka is empty-headed and to say you fool is empty-hearted. In, in other words, you are vilifying them. You are calling them evil. 
so what Jesus is getting at is not just calling somebody names, but completely demeaning them and vilifying them. Now, why is this a big deal? Well, think about murder. To us, we say, yeah, that's a bad thing to do. But for the ancient Hebrews, if you, again, if you go back to the first five books of the Old Testament, and especially in Genesis, we find that, that you and I were created in God's image. And when you murder somebody, it's not just something bad against them, but you mar, you destroy the image of God that is in them. That's why murder was such a big deal. That's why life was such a big deal to the ancient Israelites. And what Jesus is saying is that you can mar somebody and the image of God that they hold in them, not just by physically harming them and killing them, but by destroying them with your words. Friends, I've got to confess, I've never murdered somebody, but I can tear somebody apart with my words. Maybe you're in the same boat. Maybe you've never murdered somebody, but... Have you locked your jaw and tried to make them feel as small as possible? Have you, have you just discounted them as completely evil? Just know that I know their motives, I know that they're friends, I, I know that they are evil and they're empty hearted. Have you destroyed them with your words by going to somebody else? And maybe you didn't have the guts to say it to them. But you went to somebody else and you told them what happened and you told a story and you, and you tore them down in the opinions of other People, have you destroyed somebody with your words? It comes from within, doesn't it? You know that's inside of you. You know the moments that that springs up inside your heart. And Jesus, if we take him seriously, says when you do that, you've committed murder. You have marred the image of God in that person's life. You see, we like to be rule benders. We say, well, I didn't do this. I didn't do that. We didn't follow the intent of the law. We destroyed somebody with our words. Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, who's a, a pastor, um, uh, who we use uh, his, his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount through this series quite a bit. He says this about this passage. He says, do not imagine that you are clear with regard to this injunction, says Christ in effect, simply because you have not committed murder. What is the state of your heart? How do you react to things that happen? Or do you find yourself flaring into a raging temper when a person has done something to you? Or do you sometimes feel anger against a person who really has done nothing to you at all? These are the things that matter. It is that which God meant when he said, thou shalt not kill. Now, I want to point something out here. And this is super important for this to be clear on because this might be going through your mind. Just because Jesus says, do not be angry, the implication is that somebody has done something to you. And we might think, well, if that means we can't be angry, does it mean that what happened to me doesn't matter to God? That couldn't be further from the truth. truth. If somebody's hurt you, if somebody's caused you pain, that matters to God. God's anger burns against sin and it burns against that sin. In fact, Jesus, when he hung on the cross, he bore the wrath of God against sin so that you and I would not have to. Sin matters very deeply to God. So to say, do not be angry, doesn't mean that what happened to you doesn't matter to him. But God is concerned with what is going on 
inside of you and inside your heart. Now, the problem with this is you and I, we don't really believe this. Because there's really two responses to Jesus' teaching when he teaches something challenging. If you're a follower of Jesus. The third option is just to ignore them altogether. But if you're a follower of Jesus, there's really two main responses that we can have. The first one is this. To consider what he says and say, okay, Jesus, so what am I allowed to do? In other words, okay, you've drawn the boundary. Where do I get to be king? Okay, I can't cross over here, but can I do whatever I want to here? Can I be in charge here? Can I be king? Can I be lord here? The second response is to say, Jesus, what would you do in my life? In other words, admitting, Jesus, I am not king anywhere. You are king and lord and ruler of my life. And I submit my will and my heart and my words and my relationship to you. Jesus wants us to have that response. And so he gives us a couple of illustrations to to kind of drive home his point. In verse 23, Jesus says this. He says, okay, considering what I just taught, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there and go before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. And those we we kind of understand this, okay? So we don't live in this um, sacrificial system the way they did. They would, they would need to go to Jerusalem, to the one temple, and they would offer a sacrifice as a means of worship. And, and they would do this at least once a year if they were following the law, but sometimes they would go more often. Sometimes they'd bring their family, and, they said, and the point is kind of clear. Okay, if, if you're worshiping God in this horizontal sense and you realize there's a relationship that's broken, would you go and rectify that relationship? Okay, I get that. But here's the thing, Jesus is teaching this body of teaching, he's giving this sermon in Galilee up to a week's walk away from Jerusalem where this offering would be happening. And certainly some of Jesus' followers, you know, we know that they followed him from town to town, but some of his followers who are listening say, I've submitted my life to Jesus, they're listening and they live in Galilee. And so they say, okay, hold on Jesus, you're telling me That after I've given a week of my life to walk to Jerusalem and I realize that somebody has something against me, you're telling me that I gotta waste two weeks of my life, one week to go back, find that person and reconcile and then come back to Jerusalem and offer this sacrifice? And Jesus says, yeah. That's how big of a deal it is. Now, there's also something that really bothers me about these two verses as well. Did you notice it? The theme of this whole teaching is being angry with somebody else. And, and typically, listen, I can be just as irrationally angry as the next guy, okay? But typically, when we are angry with somebody, we have cause to be angry, right? We're, we're, not, we're angry with somebody because they do something wrong. Rarely are we angry with somebody when we know that they've done something, they haven't done anything wrong. For instance, if I'm driving, I'm angry with somebody who cuts me off. But if I'm going down I-15 and I need to get over to exit and I put my signal on and there's somebody right next to me and they let off the gas a little bit, allow me ample room to get over, right? I'm not mad at them, am I? I'm a little puzzled because I live in Utah and that doesn't usually happen, but I'm not mad at them. If you go into your boss's office and you're called in there and, and, and she tells you, hey, listen, 
I know you've been working a lot of hours. I, I know that it's been a lot to ask, and I know that I don't say thank you enough, but I, want to know to, I just want you to know, I see what you're doing, and, and we couldn't get by without you. In fact, I, I've asked for a raise, and, 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 and the answer is yes. You, you can have a raise. It's not as much as you deserve, but I want you to know you're valued here. You don't leave that meeting thinking, oh, my boss is an idiot. No, you... You think your boss is an idiot and you demean them when you think you're undervalued, you're angry with them when you think you're being taken advantage of. So, Jesus is teaching on anger. And the idea is that as we are angry with somebody, usually it's because they have done something to us. Did you notice that Jesus' application to this, the illustration is that when you when you are making an offering and you realize somebody has something against you, Jesus has not moved on to a new topic. He is still talking about anger. The idea is this. Even if somebody has done something to you, if you are angry with them, if you have demeaned them, if you have vilified them, if you have gossiped about them, if you have tried to get other people on your side instead of going to that person, they have something against you. Jesus, you mean to see after what they've done, the what they did to me, after how they hurt, they're the ones that have something against me? If you've done what Jesus described, yeah. If you've been angry, if you've vilified them, if you've torn them apart with your words, you have marred the image of God in them. I told you, this is gonna, this is gonna chafe with our understanding of how the world works and how relationships should work. Then Jesus goes on and he gives this illustration. He says, verse 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. Now, the idea that, the, that Jesus is kind of painting, the picture that he's painting here is that of, of um, a, a court case where you owe somebody money. And then they maybe have tried to work it out with you, but, but you're just not, there's no hope here. And so they're going to court to get a judgment against you. And, and in this case, it's not like you can declare bankruptcy. You're going to prison until you can pay the last penny. And, and by the way, you can't pay the last penny if you're in prison and you're not working. Like there is no hope for you. And so what he's saying is you run, even as your accuser is on the way to the courthouse, you run and you stop them and you plead with them and you try to work something out. That's how important this is. Now a lot of commentators try to like read into exactly what's happening here and I think that Jesus' point is just simply this. It's that important. It's like he's shouting at us as best as we can because you and I don't believe this. Okay, yeah, I know I'm supposed to not be angry. I know I'm supposed to not vilify. I know I'm not supposed to tear somebody apart with my word. I, okay, but I'm, I'm just still going to worship. Jesus says, no, 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 no. It's that important. In the kingdom of God, it is that important that even if somebody has done something to you, if you are angry, if you have torn them apart with your words, the onus is on you because he's concerned about what's going on in your heart. It's that important. You know, for you and I, this, this will land in different places. Maybe God has brought to mind or brought to your heart a relationship that you need to reconcile, maybe, maybe something along those lines, but it's gonna be different for every person because the point is there's no rule to lay down, like do this and you're good to go. No, Jesus goes beyond that to the intent of do not murder. And so to kind of figure out where it lands for us individually, um, got a few questions to ask as we wrap up. 
First question is this. When someone bumps into you, what spills out? Now, this takes a little bit of explaining, okay? Picture yourself as carrying around a cup, and the cup is filled to the brim, and what's in that cup is what's in your heart. Now, this is, you may have heard this before. This isn't original to me, but, but the idea is simply that somebody bumps into you. When somebody bumps into you, something spills out. When somebody bumps into you, what spills out of your heart? Because the way that you and I usually think about it is this, is that when somebody bumps into us, when somebody hurts us, when somebody does something wrong, when what comes out of us is, is, is not just hurt, but anger and bitterness and vilification of somebody and just assuming that their, their motives are terrible and that they are empty-headed and empty-hearted and, and they're just too far gone even for God to save. When, when that's what comes out of our heart, we want to blame that on them. Well, if they hadn't bumped into me, wouldn't it come out? It's their fault. It's logical. But friends, when somebody bumps into you, what spills out was what was already in your heart. And that is the point. Some of you have been bumped into in very significant and hurtful ways. When somebody bumps into you, what spills out? What's already in there? Second question is this, and you may have heard me ask this before, but who are you angry with but they don't know yet? Don't pretend you don't know what I'm talking about. Who are you angry with and they don't know yet? You've, you've told other people, but you haven't told them. Um, as, as a pastor in, in this community or, or sometimes just in general, people often come to me and they want to talk about ways that they are angry with somebody or somebody has hurt them. And, and in the past, and, and when I first started being a pastor, you know, I thought, man, this is a good opportunity to try to heal some relationships and get involved and maybe set up some meetings. And, and, and I did that with really good intentions, but I just realized that that wasn't really the issue. And so I've started just, when, I, when somebody comes to me and said, man, I'm, I'm really ticked off at this person, or can you believe what this person is, or you don't know what this person did to me, and, and I need to tell you about it. There's one question I ask before we go any further after I've heard the story, and that's this. Have you talked to them about it yet? And listen, honestly, I'm, I'm glad to listen, I'm glad to pray, but if the answer is no, the conversation's pretty much over. Who are you angry with but they don't know it yet? And worse yet, who are you angry with they don't know it yet, but you have already started building your case with others. You have already started to tear them down in your mind and in your heart and with other people in the conversations. Who are you angry with they don't know it yet? Last question is this, with whom do you need to reconcile? Jesus teaching an application on this point is specific to anger, but, but we can expand it beyond that. With whom do you need to reconcile? Who has something against you? Who have you blamed for your own actions? What relationship is broken and you own a piece of that pie and you have not gone then to them yet and reconciled? Listen, I get that in, in some instances it is either not healthy or safe for you to go and seek reconciliation or it's just not possible based on distance or maybe somebody's passed away. But listen, all of us in some way, God has brought some, somebody to mind. It might be a small thing 
might be an argument that you had with a coworker last week and, and, and honestly it was their fault you know, at first, but really you were a jerk in how you handled it and you never should have done that. Or maybe it's a long standing broken relationship. You haven't talked to this person for decades. I don't know where this lands for you, but with whom do you need to reconcile? Because in the kingdom of God, Jesus said, listen, I know what the sermon of the world says. <laughs> I know the sermon of the world says they deserve it. I know that the sermon of the world says don't forgive them. And, and we're going to talk about forgiveness in a few weeks. Jesus talks about that specifically. But Jesus says, listen, in the kingdom of God, it is different. And I know it's hard and I know it's going to be uncomfortable and there's going to be conversations that are difficult to have. But this is the way it's supposed to work. Let me pray for us. Father God, I confess that even as I stand on a platform like this with a microphone, uh, there are ways in which I have fallen short, that I have, I have believed that my relationships with others didn't have any bearing on my relationship with you. But God, you have called me to be so concerned about reconciliation and peace with others that I would stop pretending as I worship you and I would go and I would as quickly and urgently as possible reconcile with others before I come back and worship you because God, that's really in many ways what it means to worship you, what is actually going on in my heart, in my life. God, help us be kind of the people. Help us to be the kind of people that seek reconciliation. That when we are bumped up against what spills out, it might be painful, it might be hard, it might be hurtful, but what, what spills out isn't bitterness and anger and, and, and vile words that tears people down, but what spills out is forgiveness and patience and peace. And God, I know that apart from you, this is impossible, so we pray for your spirit to reside in us and to transform us from the inside out. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Let all the people say, amen.